It's another glorious day of illiterate. My name is Evan. My name is Taylor. I read a book. I watched a series. This week we're doing Catch-22 by Joseph Heller. Here we go. Let's get into it. This is a monster. This is a big one. Top 100 everything. This is one that has haunted me for my entire reading life. My literary life, Taylor. Why is that? Because... In high school, I was finding the books that I wanted to, you know, I'm finding, you know, the thing, the material I'm interested in, the ideas maybe I want to start, you know, following. So I get into books like Fahrenheit 451 and 1984, and the, and, but this is right up but next to it, where I'm like, yeah, that's on my list. I buy it. I'm like, okay, yeah, we're never did. <laughs> Why, it's too Every, big. A couple times even. I'm like, oh yeah, oh yeah, here we go, here we go. Mm-hmm. I have it. It's been sitting on my shelf. For a decade, it has to at least, at least. I imagine a lot of our listeners have heard of this book. Maybe a few people have read it, but it is in the Moby Dick category of I should read that. Everybody knows about it. This is you should have read it in high school, a la me. <laughs> but you watched the Hulu series this. Week. I did, I did. I watched the Hulu series, uh, uh, helmed by George Clooney, is also in it. It was pretty funny, I have to say. I did not expect this to be as as funny as it was, but I, I think. That comedy aspect of it is why it works so well. But uh, but yeah, the series was great. I watched the whole thing, six episodes. Uh, it's full, it's all available right now. Um, people are talking about it. It's hot and yeah. it's good. So here we go. I listened to the audio book because it was long and I can't read so much. But <laughs> you can't read. This it comes out. I, I can't read already. I listen to a lot of audiobooks. The narrator is real good. Jay Sanders, professional theater actor. He's been in a bunch oh, of movies. Oh, cool. He does a lot of different voices. And just, I felt like, was a great addition to the comedy. This oh, is a comedy. Yeah. Because he can do the pacing and the dialogue back and forth. And it's almost like Rick and Morty, where he's the, the same oh, yeah, guy yeah. being Rick and Morty and going That's back fun. and forth in a lot of the interchanges, but does a different voice. Oh, I bet that helped a lot with this then. So it yeah. was, I was laughing out loud in parts because it felt like I was just listening to two people talk like they should as oh, opposed awesome. to the, Good. the page. And so I'll get into well, some of the... Real quickly, I, I did it similarly. I didn't I didn't sit down and watch the show like moment for moment, but I had it on. So I, I caught most... I caught 80% of it. But like everybody does it, with The Office. Right, it's like exactly. The exactly. I watched it like that. The main thing is I was just... I was really uh, mainlining that dialogue. Uh, mm-hmm. So I kind of got it in, in a similar way. And the style of the book, which is why it's such a monster, is it's all over the place, which as we're talking here, you might get confused. That's the point. I will not rearrange. That's the fun of the book and a big part of the themes of it being war is crazy, the bureaucracy is crazy, time gets confused. Yeah. Stuff is happening all over the place. It's all unchronological, Mm. does not follow the Mm. straight narrative jumps around there'll be flashbacks that you don't know are flashbacks because somebody's talking about something it ties into a lot of the comedy because this the way that he structures a good majority of the setups and payoffs that i laughed out loud for were events that he talks about as if you already knew that they had happened so you're familiar with them Mm -hmm. and then later on in the story is what actually happened before the thing that they mentioned Uh, okay yeah this is probably conversely why people also a little bit don't tackle it because it is just because it is supposed to mess with your mind right. because that is what is designed to do. And, For sure. and interestingly, as you say that, the show is not like that. 
they might there might be tinges of it because it, it's so inherently part of the material yeah. but for the main for the most part it is pretty straightforward which is as we do these kind of uh, these materials that have uh, series or, or or new pieces of media it's really interesting to see approaches and, and how so like handmaiden's tale at least the pilot just nails the tone of that book mm-hmm. uh and and the way it actually reads on the page whereas catch 22 i can't imagine that this resembles it at all yeah on the page i watched an interview with joseph heller the author and he was saying he wasn't comparing his work directly to the bible but he was just talking about big expansive pieces of literature are not always designed to be pleasurable right in every single instance you sacrifice something for another thing and the breadth and scope and the enormity of the narrative is a struggle in everything that makes you feel being the by being the the product the byproduct exactly. of it yeah. yeah and so the other portion to get into before we get started with the plot to make sense of it is the style of the language of the book so this is a big part of the story as well the whole title is based on a paradox the way that he writes has a lot of repeating phrases there's circular reasoning for comedic and narrative effect that goes on just how deja vu things can be. Sometimes you'll just repeat a scene that already happened earlier in a slightly different way, and you're like, well, I already read this. Uh, I have to say, of, of all the pieces of, of war content I've consumed, I've never watched one, I've never digested one that actually made me go, oh yeah, this might be a little bit how I would interpret these situations. Mm-hmm. Just because I think, you know, obviously <laughs> uh, the, the, the comedic tendencies... I would probably be just the absurdity and the tragedy of it all. I would, mm-hmm. I'm like, the comedy just made so much sense Oh, to I me. dug it. I dug oh, it. Man. This, I, there's a lot of these classic books that we've read or I've read thus far that I'm like, I'm slogging through it, but it's really not for me. This was definitely for me. Yeah, yeah. The comedy of it. A lot of it, it was almost like, it was like, a, like a classic screwball comedy. Right. Or, uh, you know, like the Three Where Stooges. Where horrible, real grounded things happen, but it's the, it's the emotion of it is so heightened, the disparity of it all mm-hmm. is so heightened. The comedy is just, it just happens. It's, but it, it, it really did make me feel as like if me and you were really there on that airbase, we would, we, <laughs> we would be clowning. We would be joking about dying every day. You know, yeah. we just like, how, how do we get out? And just like laughing about how desperate mm-hmm. everybody is to have agency. Uh, yeah. uh, this is the one that made me go, oh yeah, I might, me, particularly me, because I know me, I might feel similar to this in mm-hmm. this situation. So the great Harper Lee, I found, said about this book, she wrote To the Kill great, a Mockingbird. The great, the, the great Harper Lee, the great. <laughs> she said, Catch-22 is the only war novel I've ever read that makes any sense. Oh, wow. <laughs> Dang. Okay, yeah, the great. <laughs> the she, yeah. That was so you good. would side yep, with her yep, in that I do. Yeah, me well. and Harper Lee over here sipping my coffee. It yeah. was uh, split by critics. It had been said this is the best novel to come out in years when it first came out. Somebody from the New Yorker said it doesn't seem to have been written, instead shouted onto paper. <laughs> this is see, this is why I was like, yeah, this would be me. <laughs> but it gained it gained a cult following over the years. It came out in sixty one. But yeah, that's we'll talk more about how it came to be 
and who Joseph Heller is and what in the world any of this means to him. Okay. Another thing with the enormosity of it, I counted, and certainly there are probably more, but there are at least 65 named characters in the book. Wow. So if I miss out on one of your favorite characters as we're talking about this, I'm not going to go through them all. Yeah, they might not be in the series then either because the series <laughs> does a good job of like how, having like the, the, the top very, six. Or, exactly. Yeah. You know, the, the, the your, your, your few cast of characters, there's definitely yeah. not room for 65. And then also same thing with things being so circular and all over the place. It's not a mistake. It's weird. Yeah. And I might not get through all of the plot elements, but what I'm more going to try and hit on are the themes that come into play. So the big four themes of this book. Mm-hmm. Language, like we talked about, paradoxes, circular reasoning, back and forth, mm-hmm. illogical things. Bureaucracy, in wartime especially, the lack of sense about that, just doing what people tell you because that's what they told you to do. Systems that are in place that people don't understand but follow through on. Death, what that means, oh. the paradox of that, death versus life, choosing to run away from death versus choosing to go towards life. And then time and how that gets all mixed up mm-hmm. when you're in a place that you don't understand why you're there. Let's crack this baby open. I'm, I'm ready to get weird. <laughs> ready to get weird? I'm ready to get confused, desperate. I'm ready to scream. <laughs> <laughs> and be silly. This is a silly book. Who knew? I did not. <laughs> I, I never knew it was this silly. I was shocked. I was shocked. Starts on an island off the coast of Italy. And this is war, supposed to be World War II. And there's this guy, Yosarian, and he's in a hospital in the war... They're all bombers, plane pilots and kind of thing. And he is in this hospital. He's pretending because he doesn't want to fly planes. And that's his whole thing. He's trying to not die in the war, which is the central through line of the whole story in the series. Right. And, and immediately I go, oh, yeah, of all the of all the war things I've ever... Like, that seems to be, like, the thing that people don't want to focus on is how do I not die when it's like, that would be like the main thing that would be on my mind all the time is how can I make sure I live? Or, or yeah. you know, like, I don't know. Like I, I was, re- <laughs> it was refreshing to be like, that be the central conflict in a character to be like, how do I, how do I literally anything? How do I stay alive? And it is a refreshing and provocative concept for the time for sure. Absolutely. Especially right after world war two, where the oh, idea, man. the idea of a hero is to save others Yosarian, the main character, his is the exact opposite. How do I save myself? Which is redefining heroism as the preservation of your own life because of the illogical bureaucracy. The that facelessness you're in. Of, the, of it all, yes. Yeah. And so then that becomes how do you, heroic. How can you? How can agency? How can you ever have agency? It's the land of the free, and home of the brave. But how? How do you have? You know, it's it's it is a great paradox. It's the American paradox. It's 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 any cultural uh, society paradox of how can I be the country and myself at the same time mm-hmm. and at long and short you can't you have to choose at one point or another based on the context or the decision i have i'm going to be i'm going to be the american i'm going to be the countryman i'm going to be me i'm going to i i need to choose me and it and you can make that choice over and over again but you do or have if to the choose at some point it. yeah 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 so now he's he's so he's stuck in the hospital He's doing this thing where they they're got to keep him busy, so they're censoring letters that people are writing and sending out. So he's crossing out, you know, sensitive information or whatever. But he doesn't take it seriously at all. He just starts crossing out all the adverbs that he can find, <laughs> and then he starts crossing out stuff where he's only leaving a ands and thes in all of the letters. 
And then he just starts re-signing things as Washington Irving or Irving Washington, just making stuff up, re-marking the letters as these different things. Oh, man. There's a guy in there. This is the start of these turns of phrase and logic and paradoxes and all that stuff. And he said he stopped playing chess with this guy because the games were so interesting that they started to become foolish. <laughs> uh, one of the characters that will reoccur is Dunbar, who's just one of his friends that's also in the hospital pretending to be sick so that he doesn't have to fly. There's <laughs> another guy that comes in that's the Texan who's so good-natured that nobody could stand him. And next to him is this guy who's they call the, the soldier in white, and it's just this full-body cast. And all you can see <laughs> is his mouth. Oh, that's in the show for sure. Mm-hmm. Hilarious. <laughs> And he will come back later <laughs> as well. Although, I should say that if I say and then in this, it could be before, it could be after. Mm. I'm not going to make sense of this to you and rejigger all of the... Pl- I'm going if in the order of the you're confused and going, wait, what, huh? That's exactly... <laughs> that already happened? You're not confused at all. You're yeah. right there. You're on it. Yeah. There's a chaplain who comes in who's the spiritual leader. He represents how this affects one's spiritual life and how that starts to also not make mm-hmm. sense, morals, good and bad. So he says the Texan ended up driving everybody from the ward and uh, the only person that was left was this investigative detective in the army that got a cold. So the, the one guy that's not supposed to be actually got sick mm-hmm. and has stayed there, he'll come in later. Uh, everybody gets mad when Yossarian mentions the war, especially this guy Clevenger, because he keeps saying, nobody's trying to kill you. Because Yosarian, his logic is, everybody's trying to kill me. But Clevenger's like, not you specifically. But Yosarian is like, it doesn't matter. If it's me, everybody's trying to kill me, he takes it very personally, which Clevenger doesn't really believe in. Well, it could be him. How do I figure out how it's not going to be me? How do I take myself out of the equation? Yeah. Where, Where does that equation start? Yeah, and, and Yossarian's like, well, I got poisoned. And Clevenger's like, no, everyone got poisoned. <laughs> and we wonder how that happened or where that fits into the timeline. Yossarian has a roommate named Orr, which the guy in the audiobook does with a lisp and kind of a, a doofy, mm. like constantly out to lunch kind of, <laughs> kind of guy who's just working on making their tent as nice as possible and built this wood stove and a floor <laughs> and all this stuff. And he says there's a dead man that's also in their tent. There's a dead man? So he says there's a dead man who's also in their tent. We come to find out later that it's just the dead guy's stuff. But they, but it's, it's I guess, like a metaphor for how that person is there, even though they're not there. Mm. It's the presence of this person who's dead yeah. that just they can't take away because of the bureaucracy of later on what happened, you realize, is this guy got transferred and then accidentally went to the operations tent trying to figure out where he was supposed to put his stuff, but he put his stuff in their tent and then the operations just sent him off instead of getting him checked in appropriately. And then he died in that flight two hours later. So technically he wasn't registered to be in the thing. So they can't take his stuff away either. So it's just his dead stuff Uh. that they have to keep in his tent. And so they just say, well, there's a dead guy living with us. But it's very confusing when you first read the book because they don't mention oh his God. body or anything. You're like, is, is there like a ghost? Is there that's an actual hilarious. person? But that ties into the absurdity <laughs> of the whole thing. There's a guy named McWall. Oh, that's a beautiful, yeah. just, that's a, just a beautiful example of the, the absurdity, the tragedy, and the comedy of this whole thing tied up into just one kind of image. And oh. there are 65 of those <laughs> different <laughs> nuanced 
takes on it. Yeah. There's a guy named McWatt who flies too low all the time, which ends up being his undoing later on if we get to that. And just these these backwards logic of, like, he trusts Orr, his roommate, so much. He says Orr was right because to the best of his knowledge, nothing, he had never been wrong. And that's how you know he was right. <laughs> There's this guy named Milo who runs the mess hall, which I don't know if he's in the in the series very prevalent yeah yeah um yeah there's like a one whole episode all about yeah, how so he... insane like milo's insane <laughs> yeah, so he pops which in. was a little bit of like it opens up the world even a little bit more mm-hmm. and it you go off and i'm like what in the world is going on <laughs> this place on? is absurd no yeah. i know and so that character is like yeah yeah please, so we just see on. him in the, in the first part of the book he's running the mess hall and that's yeah. all we really know about him and then you start to learn more about him and you're like oh my goodness who is this guy uh there's a the doctor is Doc Danica, and so he's the guy that can that can ground you and say you can't fly. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. so Yosarian has a lot of back and forth oh, with yeah. this guy. He's kind of also a shady moral character who is clearly doing illegitimate doctorly activities back <laughs> in Long Island and is constantly complaining about how people are out to get him or up against him. And it's like, dude, you were doing all of these you're just wrong paranoid things. <laughs> yeah. Because you're doing terrible things. Yeah. Like, <laughs> but now he's stuck in the war like everybody else. So he tells uh, Yosarian, that the colonel wants them to do 50 missions instead of 45. So this is a constant reoccurring element in the book and is really the only way to ground you in where you are chronologically. Yeah. Is if they ever mention the number of missions that they have to be doing. And you're like, oh, so this must have happened before because they went from 30 to 40 missions. Now see, that's what he has to see, do. Yeah, and, and in the show, that's very that's followed pretty A to B to C. Yeah, it's with, kind of all with, over the yeah, place. So yeah, now we know oh, it was 45 and now they, they need him to do 50. So it's the Colonel Cathcart is the main guy mm-hmm. uh, that is in charge of their squadron or what have you. Mm-hmm. And he's the one that keeps upping the missions. <laughs> So the doctor at this point is also, for whatever reason, because of the bureaucracy, he also has to have so many missions, but they just write his name on the logs that he went on these missions, <laughs> but he doesn't actually go, which comes in way later, Okay, which we'll get yeah. to. Yeah. Which, this is one of the things that I love, even though the book is such a monster, that's where a lot of the comedy comes in. There'll be a little mention of something, and then chapter 37, 359 pages later, you're like, oh, There's that the- had major repercussions <laughs> in the logic of this story. That. yeah. Because it was so illogical at the beginning. And so so sometimes the payoffs and uh, the setups and payoffs are are, are switched around even, where mm-hmm. you, that's interesting, I love that, that's yeah. cool. We get a we get a clue into this guy Major Major who becomes huge and I love you told me was one of your favorite yeah (laughs) and I don't know if this is in the in the show yeah but they say he looks like Henry Fonda in distress (laughs) which also comes back so Henry Fonda was a famous actor at the time uh, but nobody really cares about Henry Fonda anymore Henry Fonda was but like I'm I'm trying to I don't know what they looked like well enough to go like oh yeah that character looks like Henry so if you want a modern reference you could just say it's as if he looked like George Clooney in distress, like a George Clooney kind of person. And there was a m- movie version of Catch-22 that came out in the 70s. had a lot of big-name actors hmm. of the time. It took two years for them to write the script. Joseph Heller approved it. He said there was even some dialogue and stuff he wished he'd put in his novel. Oh. Didn't do very well commercially because MASH came out the same year. Uh, and also Vietnam War is happening. People yeah, are not, not wanting to learn about war stuff, even if it's time, critical yeah. of it. 
But it had Alan Arkin was the main guy, Yosarian. Oh, yeah. A very young Alan Arkin. It oh, had wow. Art Garfunkel from Simon and Jeez. Garfunkel. Had John Voight in it. Martin, no way. Martin Sheen, Orson what? Welles. What? what? All kinds of people. What? Yeah. And then the guy who directed it did uh, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, The Graduate, and The Birdcage. Okay, so not that much. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> so there's a lot of stuff. But the guy that they picked to play Major Major in that didn't look like Henry Fonda. They didn't make the jokes about Henry Fonda. Mm-hmm. But even if you don't know who Henry Fonda is, it keeps coming up how people confuse him for Henry that's Fonda. That's hilarious. I love that. I don't think that's in the show. Yeah. I, and uh, maybe somebody will be correct. Again, yeah. again, I was listening to the dialogue for yeah, most yeah. of it, but I'm like, I don't know. But I don't think Fonda it's a, it's a modern, normal, relevant yeah. thing that people right. really care about. But it's just so, it, it, it ties into Major Major's character in the book because he is the most milk toast neutral person of all time. Right. The fact that not only does he become the major, which we'll get into through spurious means, he also looks like somebody that's really successful and famous that people <laughs> confuse him for, which he has no business being a part of. So he looks like Henry Fonda in distress or goes off on this weird diatribe, which is his roommate. That's kind of weird about how he liked to stuff crab apples in his cheeks and Yosarian okay. is like, why did you like to do this? And Orr goes on this logical train that makes absolutely no sense of how he's like, because they're better than chestnuts. And he's like, well, why did you walk around with anything in your mouth? And he's like, I didn't walk around with anything. I walked around with crab apples in my but cheeks. Why? <laughs> and he's like, why? He's like, because I wanted big cheeks. And he's like, why? And he's like, because, you know, like there's people that have rubber balls in their hands to like strengthen them. Yeah. And he's like, well, what does that have to do with anything? And he's like, well, I did that so that, you know, I could protect my reputation so that people wouldn't look at the fact that I had crab apples in my cheeks. And he was like, it was tough to explain the rubber balls, though, because I had crab apples in my cheeks. And you never learn why he did this at all. Well, that sounds like a real conversation with somebody and you can't get them to understand exactly what you're asking them. Mm -hmm. And you're asking them about something that they don't actually understand either. <laughs> yeah. And they're trying to, like... It just becomes another excuse for beautiful. another thing. Which is part of the bureaucracy of war. You just do things because it's the excuse, because you did that, because you did that. And because like, the machine must move on and the, the job must get done. And, you know... And you just accept it. And that's where somebody like Yo-Yo comes in and mm-hmm. says, well, I don't want it to be me. How can I game the system and get and get out? Well, you know, next person in line... Because yeah. it, it's all faceless and it doesn't matter because we'll send a doctor who came out to do this off to the front lines immediately <laughs> because we didn't check him in and <laughs> nobody can touch his stuff now. But, you know, yeah, it's like uh, because of all of this, because there's so much not paying attention going on. What does it matter if it's me in the seat or not when the plane goes, you know, like, yeah, I'm like, oh, like, I totally understand his thought process to a degree. Like, absolutely. And it's just, again, back to is refreshing to actually see a soldier not doing yeah. the best being the countrymen. And for some again, not many people were really thinking this after World War II. Absolutely. Just keep But yeah. Conversely, this comes out 1960 what? Cuz we get written, in the counterculture was, here. But by the time the 60s are actually coming around, yeah. you so, have both, you have the hippie culture is actually coming to a head. Those people are aging into actual agency and then you have everybody else who is already an adult. Who says that you that that's absolutely wrong? So it's it, it kind of a cataclysm of the hippie culture yeah. uh, mashup in the '60s is happening almost right within the content of this book. That's actually kind of fascinating. So here's what happens with the history of it: the, he Heller Joseph Heller was a bombardier during World War II. 
says that he it was the most fun he's ever had. I don't know if that's a direct quote, but he 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 was not Jeez. dismissive of that experience mm-hmm. in this book. Uh, he flew sixty missions in nineteen forty four. He's twenty one years old. Wow. The war ends. He doesn't start writing the book until f- fifty three. So not like while he's within it or whatever. But See, it takes. That's, but it that's takes... interesting to me because it's not like this stuff is not inspired from what actually happened in and around him and his friends and his relationships during that yeah. time. But it took him a long time to actually yeah, get so it. So it was written between fifty three and nineteen sixty one. So it took him eight years to write it. In that time, he uh, was getting his degree. He went to a bunch of different schools. He went to USC, he went to NYU, he went to Columbia. Make up your mind. <laughs> well, because of the army, he was able to, they paid for it or whatever. Uh, His whole then, life's like this book. <laughs> he worked He worked as an ad copywriter. Oh. Uh, and in that time, wrote one chapter and submitted it to a magazine and then didn't touch the story for another year. There was, His agent was like, oh, well, you should write this uh, into a whole thing. They said, we'll give you 750 bucks up front and then 750 when it's done. And then, of course, he missed the deadline by another five years because it came no. out in 61. Uh, but the movie and royalty rights made him a millionaire after mm. all of that. Um, but he said the anti-war feelings came from, in the time he was writing it, the Korean War and the Cold War of the 50s, mm. not his experience in World War II. Mm. And that's why it hit the cultural touch point fascinating the vietnam war Mm -hmm. and why every kid in college had it in their arms because it came out in 61 but the setting is world war ii so we talked about this doctor doc danica who's this who's this shysty guy he says doc danica was his friend and would do just about nothing to help him (laughs) playing all of typical phrases and wordplay and just, <laughs> I love That's the characterization so of some people. There's this character named General Dreedle, the type of person who always wrote enhanced when he meant increased. Just like being a little bit too fancy. Yeah. <laughs> um, there's this guy named Havermeyer, who's another soldier, who he said never took evasive action. He just always flew straight through, which is... <laughs> Counter to Yosarian, who flings and flies all over the place. He's right. like, I don't care if we drop a single bomb. I'm not going to get hit. Yeah. And people are jostling about the cabin and whatnot. No regard for the bombs whatsoever. Yosarian was a collector of good questions. There's a guy named Captain Black, who they start... He's the intelligence guy, and they have these intelligence meetings. Whenever he opened up the floor for questions, people asked such great questions, like, who is Spain? Why is Hitler? When is right? <laughs> Where is that stooped man I used to call father when the merry-go-round broke down? <laughs> and balls. Just <laughs> Great glitch. And then, uh, yeah, wonderful. <laughs> but Yosarian said, where are the Snowdens of yesteryear? Mm. Which nobody wants to talk about, which is some guy that died. And this is the first piece we get of, as the story builds, if there ever was a true climax of it mm-hmm. this is the climax of understanding what happened with this snowden character because as a repeating element it keeps coming back and there keeps being smaller pieces okay, of, yeah okay well why is yosarian asking this question we learn later he does know a little bit about it it is haunting him mm, okay uh then colonel corn spelt with a k for some reason starts like the band, uh, <laughs> like the band. maybe they stole it from here starts uh saying and here's one of the, the kind of uh, paradoxes, is he says, the only people that are now permitted to ask questions are the people that had never have, and so the meetings get canceled because nobody asks any questions <laughs> and there's no intelligence to deliver. 
There's a metaphor in the fact that they start doing skeet shooting, and Dunbar, who is his best friend, shoots skeet because he says the boring stuff takes a long time and it makes your life feel longer. Mm. And so that's why he does it. That's interesting. Yeah. That's interesting. That's so in the same mindset where Yo-Yo is like, how do I, I, you know, I don't want it to be me. How do I get out of here? How do I get out of the game? Mm-hmm. You know, somebody else just, who's yeah. just locked into the game, but trying to enhance the moment mm-hmm. as much as they can, even to the point where it's like, I'm not even going to enjoy it. I just want <laughs> it to feel like more. Yeah. Yeah. That's fast. So there's, yeah, there's so many different angles. There's a guy named Wintergreen who's in the office and, uh, he's on the phone or he's picking up to call the superiors and some guy is saying it's easy to make money it's hard not to make money and they're like arguing about who's a poet that made money and so he's on the phone and he just says t.s Eliot," and then hangs up and this is part of the information and technology and bureaucracy and all that stuff and they're like who called we don't know what did they say they just said t.s Eliot," and so then they call their superior and they're like is there a code and they're like is there a code called t.s Eliot?" and they're like no and they're like we'll call him back and so then they call them back and just say T.S. Eliot. And they're like, well, what did he say? He said T.S. Eliot. What does that mean? <laughs> and everybody gets so confused and it starts this panic about what, like, what codes are. And this is our brand of comedy. On. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so that's a whole section. because, of... because Well, we often, we often talk about how things can just go erratically awry with the slightest of nudge. And yeah. So, so it's funny. These the way that these red tapes of these systems are set up, the bureaucracy of it all, but it's like, it, it, it's it's incredibly fragile. <laughs> it's and like, it is man-made and fragile and... From 20,000 feet yeah. up, hilarious. Hilarious. Yeah. Uh, the doc, Danica, goes into how he, they ended up pulling him from, to be able to go into service. He wrote in to the army saying he was unfit for service as a doctor. He's like... Yeah, I said I had one leg amputated. I was bedridden with arthritis. They still sent this guy around to check on me, and I got sent to the army. He said, we live in an age of distrust of our values. Mm. The word of a licensed physician, even though it was me, was even distrusted because he wrote his own report saying he couldn't join the army. He's like, what have we come to that they can't even trust the word of a licensed physician? (laughs) Uh, There's a a guy named Chief Half-Oat. And uh, his story that he presents is the way that he got into the army is he was on land and they found oil and he's like a human divining rod because then he got moved and then wherever he moved, they found oil there. Like he's putting the cart before the horse and being like, they just keep, they just kept following us and wherever we landed next like moving around yeah. the United States, they found oil. So then we had to move, and then they found oil there. <laughs> uh. And so he thinks that he uh, is the reason that they found oil. And he's like, uh, there was so much racial prejudice. It's terrible treating an Indian like, uh, and then uses all of these racial slurs for the <laughs> other <laughs> races. <laughs> I like it. And so then they move him to Colorado, which is where the army training is, which is where we realize a lot of these guys met up. Yosaria met up. Yeah. Wintergreen met up. These other people met up. So then (laughs) Yosarian is trying to figure out, he's like, oh, well, they can ground people who are crazy. And this is where the title comes in and Catch-22 and all of that stuff. So he's going to talk to the doctor and he's saying, ask Clevenger. He'll tell you I'm crazy. 
And the doctor's like, he's crazy. And it's like, uh, why don't you send him home? Yeah. And, but and, and so, and so, <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. But anybody who asked isn't crazy because mm-hmm. of course they'd want to get out of war. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you can't let the crazy people decide. <laughs> so that's a catch 22. Anyone who wants to get out of combat duty isn't really crazy. And so they have to fly. But all you have to do is ask. But then that means you're not crazy. But then that means you're not crazy. So what a catch-22 is... By this logic, they need to send all these pilots home right now. (laughs) (laughs) The very definition of a catch-22 is a problem for which the only solution is denied by a circumstance inherent in the problem. So, for example, you lose something, and that requires you to find it, the solution to the problem. But if you lost your glasses... How do you find them? Because you need them to find what you lost. But what have you lost were your glasses? Whoops. How are you going to find them? Right? So uh, so the author, Joseph Heller, he would say when somebody would come up to him and give an example, he would grumble off to the side. He's like, that's not a catch-22. They almost never are. <laughs> Whenever anybody tries to come up with one. Right. <laughs> it doesn't just mean irony or it doesn't just mean a paradox. And to him also, he would even say that, like, the glasses one is not a catch-22. It's got to be a high-stakes mm. life-and-death kind of thing. But now, it's in the lexicon. Absolutely. And this is where it came from. I don't know. I certainly didn't know that that was the case, that this is what created that term. He right. didn't steal it from anything else and name it. I assumed, he, I assumed it was something he came across in real life and then put into the book, and it's just something that nobody had ever actually committed to word. Right. That's what I assume, but... Um... No, he came up with it. The story behind the title, for the eight years that he was writing it, mm-hmm. he had it called Catch 18, and mm-hmm. that's just what he wanted. 18 is a lucky number, um, but just as he was about to publish it, another novel about World War II had just come out and was called Mila 18, and he um, wanted it to be Catch-18. And Mila-18 was number seven on the New York Times bestsellers list. And they were like, we can't have well, two books about World War II with, with 18, 18 in, in the title of a two-word title. Yeah. yeah. So then... Uh, the they, second word of a two-word title. Yeah. <laughs> so they were like, okay, well, let's uh, let's call it Catch-11. Because they like the idea of a repeating number. Yeah, yeah. One and one. Um, and... Joseph Heller, in an interview, was saying, he was like, this is the only other number with a vowel sound at the beginning. So 18 and 11. And he liked the way that that flowed. But the original Ocean's Eleven movie just came out ah, months before. Now. <laughs> and so you can't have Catch 11 and Ocean's Eleven. Echoes of George Clooney, though. Yeah, there he is. He's in all this. So then they were like, well, let's do Catch 17. Fine, we'll do Catch 17. But that was close. There was a... a a comedy drama war film in a prisoner of war camp. Very similar. And that was called Stalag 17. Ah! (laughs) We can't do that. So then they said, well, let's just do catch 14. They like that. And then the publisher was like, no, 14 is not a funny number. Mm, We don't like that one. (laughs) Ah! So then they were like 22. And he's like, that's it. That's it. There it is. Print it. And then there it was. And there it is now for. Wow. So they tried seven different numbers. Some catch that catch 22. And that's the famous phrase. That's the famous (laughs) phrase. Uh, That's amazing. I always assumed it was just something he had come across in real life and put into a book. But actually, even it was bureaucracy. That's (laughs) hilarious, actually. And and quite beautiful. And if you really break it down, Mm -hmm. (laughs) then the title itself is a product of the exact thing that this novel is trying to pick apart. 
Yes. No. 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 <laughs> Fine. No. Compromise for no reason. Let's do. <laughs> sure. Whatever. We can't do that. And there it is. I love that. That's now it's that's in beautiful. Books. Uh, keep going on. The, his his roommate Orr talks about this guy named Appleby, and they have this huge argument. Or again with his madness logic about the crab apples and his thing. He's like, uh, Appleby's got flies in his eyes. Yosarian's like, no, he doesn't. And Or is like, well, how can he see that he's got flies in his eyes if he's got flies in his eyes? <laughs> and uh, he's again talking about how Or is so truthful. He's like, Or has never lied to him, unlike his mother, brother, sister, aunt, uncle, teacher, neighbor, newspaper. <laughs> <laughs> so then, Appleby... Word gets around that he's got flies in his eyes. <laughs> so Appleby's starting to freak out. So he's they're like driving somewhere and he's like, Havermeyer, have I got flies in my eyes? <laughs> and Havermeyer's like, no. He, Appleby says to Havermeyer, because he's eating something, he's like, well, you've got crumbs on your face. And Havermeyer's like, well, I'd rather have crumbs on my face than flies in my eyes. And now he's just paranoid for the rest of the, uh, for the, rest of the book. That he's got flies in his eyes and he can't see them. He doesn't know and nobody's telling him. Do I have flies in my <laughs> And then we hit kind of another serious point with Yosarian in the cockpit, and we know that Snowden was lying in the back dying, saying, help him. I'm like, oh, so this is who this Snowden person is, that he was saying, what happened to Snowden? It's like, well, he was with you in a plane, and he died, and he was in the back saying to help him? Mm. And why are you asking the question mm -hmm. of what happened to him? Circulating in his mind. So... <laughs> There's, there's, this is one of my favorite characters, is this guy named Hungry Joe, which I read somewhere that Joseph Heller, that was his nickname in World War II. Oh, cool. That's like the only, one of the only things he directly says, yeah, this is it's based real, on yeah. this. That's cool. Because it's an amalgamation of his experience. So Hungry Joe does have 50 missions done. He's done it. And uh, they're like, Hungry Joe asked to go home. But yeah. He's crazy. So he doesn't ask. And he's, he's always hearing things. Sounds bother him so much. He's like, you got to roll your watch in your socks, woolen socks, before you go to bed. Like any small sounds. He's always just screaming in the middle of the night. Um, but it's okay because he set his tent up in the wrong area. So he's like far away on the other side of the railroad tracks. That's just people. Hungry Joe yeah. screaming about all his mistakes. Mm -hmm. He's a little bit of a perv because he's always trying to take naked pics of women. Oh. But, uh... No, no. He's like going up to the big screen and like trying to take an upskirt shot. What does he have? The... Like one of the big flash cameras? With <laughs> like a... yeah. Jesus, this is well, not the way that like he... they have Polaroids. Like, come on. <laughs> the way that he seduces few years out. <laughs> the way that he seduces women is like he he says he pretends to be a Life magazine photographer. And the irony in the story that the narrator says is that he was <laughs> in real life before the war. He was a Life magazine photographer. Oh, so he wasn't. <laughs> That, I love it. I love it. That's hilarious. Yeah. And there was a point that they find out. You can't just out. go around pretending. Well, I am. A, you can't just pretend. <laughs> there was a time where Hungry Joe had 25 missions and that was enough to leave. But Colonel Cathcart raised it up. So now it's gotten to the point where he had gotten up to 50. Uh, but he still doesn't ask. But he still doesn't ask. Dr. Nika goes on this. He's got a screaming to do it. <laughs> He's got screaming to do. <laughs> Alone in his tent. Doc Danica goes into this tirade about just, he's like, I'm telling you, it was 50K a year tax free. They paid in cash <laughs> just when I needed it. I love I was sent. I love that. 
and he, again, he's trying to get out of doing these flying missions by writing his name. Appleby, <laughs> they're talking about how Appleby is the best ping pong player with flies in his eyes. He's never <laughs> lost a serve. <laughs> Just little bits oh, like man. that that they, yeah. that they uh, set up and pay off or call back yeah. to. Oh, that's That, like, so from funny. now on, he's just, oh, he's just got flies in his eyes. <laughs> Every time they mention him again, no matter what he is, he's the best with flies in his <laughs> eyes. <laughs> uh, so we realize that this Chief Half-Oat guy has his roommate is named Captain Flume. And they say Captain Flume is obsessed with the idea that Chief Half-Oat is going to tiptoe to him in his cot in the middle of the night and slit his throat from ear from ear when okay. he's sound asleep. And then the very next sentence, he got this idea from Chief Wife Half-Oat, who did tiptoe <laughs> to him in the middle of the night and hiss in his ear that he was going to slit his throat when he was sound asleep. And, uh, <laughs> and he asked Chief Half-Oat why, and he says, why not? And this is the logic of war and yeah. the madness of it. And so then... Uh, why would you do this? He stays awake all night every night because he never can go to sleep but what actually happens is he just dreams that he's awake and so he's exhausted all the time oh my gosh i think that's what actually happens to me <laughs> i so tell that, emily all the time i don't dream i feel i've told everybody this my entire life i don't dream i just go to sleep and i wake up immediately and it's the next morning and anyway. he's exhausted i've just been dreaming on the way and so captain flume is off the deep end for the rest of the story because of Half oats just nonsense for no reason. That's amazing. It's hard, but like that kind of writing happens every paragraph. Like it's it's well written. Bananas. It's funnily well written. Oh yeah. gosh. There's a point where they're playing basketball and Major Major is there and the the general rolls up and is like, You're the new squadron commander. And don't think it means anything, because it doesn't. Except you're the new squadron commander. <laughs> and so then everybody treats him differently. Uh so he had three strikes against him that for some reason they just like go way back in history to kind of like the origins of major, 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 major <laughs> for one of these chapters. Uh, there was three strikes against him. His mom, his dad, and Henry Fonda. Because <laughs> he looks too much like him. His dad made so much money not making alfalfa because the government subsidized him. Okay, um, yeah. He was not growing more alfalfa than anyone in the country. <laughs> <laughs> Just the 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 way that it's written, the reverse amazing. Uh but see they do they but they get they keep a lot of those turn of phrase in the, in the show. It's mm -hmm. really funny and because and uh, it's George Clooney's sensibilities uh mm -hmm eking throughout the screen even when he's Mixed nowhere kind of around like a coen brothers movie. yes exactly yeah. exactly so it really worked it was really it was really it was really great um and so but i'm just i'm just eating up this writing though this mm -hmm. is so funny yeah the uh <laughs> so then he goes into how his dad who made more money not growing alfalfa than anyone <laughs> uh waited for this moment to like name his son and he said a weaker man would have wasted the opportunity calling him drum minor sergeant or even C-sharp. <laughs> he said he wasn't going to waste it. He named him Major Major. <laughs> and then it was only in kindergarten that uh, Major Major learned that his middle name was also Major. So he's Major Major Major. And which just completely ostracized him in kindergarten. He never had a friend. Um, 
That's but right. he goes through all of these qualities of major, 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 and it's just all the Ten Commandments that he doesn't. He's like, he didn't covet his neighbor's ass. He didn't. <laughs> he didn't take the Lord's name in vain. And you're just like, oh, this is just the Ten Commandments. <laughs> It's all the it's all the banter they did at they did at the mess hall at the table. Mm-hmm. That's that's amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, that's funny though because that scene does play out with Major Major in the show when they're at the basketball. Who the, mm-hmm. they they come to get him um, because he's not reporting to some meeting that he needs to be on, and this is yeah. where they realize they've promoted him based on his name. Right. Not because of his rank, but they cannot take back his promotion because the decision's been made and he's on all the rosters and all the paperwork has been done since 1945. And it's like, and yeah. he's late for the meeting that he's on paper for right now. Yeah. <laughs> so the whole rest, but yeah. it, it all happens right there on the basketball field. And they're, they're realizing it when he's explaining, well, my dad thought it was really funny. Uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so like, it, and he explains all this in front of, the whole basketball crew. Gotcha. <laughs> well, they've rolled up in a Jeep. It's like, you're late to the meeting, Major. It's like, I'm not a Major, but you're Major. <laughs> it, it was, but yeah, so. Yeah, so they, so they they also paint this portrait of him, like I said, just being the most, like, mediocre person. People were <laughs> impressed by how unimpressive he was. That's his life. So the fact that he becomes the most important person through a fluke is, again, because of his look. this bureaucracy, language, <laughs> All of that stuff. Yeah, and he looked like Henry Fonda. The look, the name, and <laughs> boom, boom, boom. Yeah. He was promoted because of a of a computer mistake. And uh yeah, he had the he was playing like I said, he was playing basketball. The team fluctuated between one and thirty-five people. So he could just kind of you know, fade into the background. Uh people who hardly noticed he looked like Henry Fonda, it was all they talked about <laughs> from then on. It says that he started forging the Washington Irving names because he heard some guy in the hospital was doing that because he thought it was fun because he, they kept giving him documents to sign. Oh, yeah. And all he would do was sign his name, Major, 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 Major. And then it would come back to him from another department needing to re-sign it. And some document ended up being this giant manuscript. And he found that if he wrote Washington Irving, it never found his desk again. It just disappeared into the bureaucratic ether. <laughs> oh, uh, so he just started writing Washington Irving on oh, everything. Man. Just he, so it disappears. Yeah. And he, only, and he was like, it was fun Hilarious. to write. Hilarious. It was more fun than his name. There's another investigative detective person who comes in and interrogates him and is like, who's writing this? You know? And so he pawns it off and is like, well, I think the chaplain was. So now the chaplain for the rest of the story is in hot water. They think the chaplain is forging Washington Irving on things, even though he got the idea from Yosarian in the hospital. Major, major, major did. But now major, major, major is just hiding from everyone. That's his whole shtick is because he looks like Henry Fonda and everybody wants him because he's the head guy, but he just hides in the office. And he's wondering how this major named De Coverly works because he's only there's this old guy that just is in the back and only plays horseshoes and doesn't do anything this old white-haired dude and this is the first instance you really get about this guy and this is what major 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 wants how does this major and in the book so the way that the audio book is it's he does hmm to coverly but it's just two dashes to coverly like they don't say his first name because nobody knows who he is yeah 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 how do they do that in the I don't. I don't remember how they did it in in Catch Twenty Two exactly. They but, might just call him Major yeah. Coverly. 
They probably did. Yeah, they didn't. That never jumped out at me like that. It's <laughs> funny though. I was watching. I was rewatching Vice, the uh, the Dick Cheney movie last mm-hmm. night, and they they posit a scene where uh, he's supposed to be meeting with people and to make some deal happen with uh, you know the Halliburton and the the oil industry or whatever. Except all of that stuff would be redacted, so they do, they don't know who he met with exactly, mm-hmm. or somebody does. Except it's redacted, so they play out the scene with blurred faces, oh. and when they say. <laughs> Oh, nice to see you again. Beep. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so it, it's similarly. Yeah. So they could have done something like that in, in Catch Twenty Two, or, or, or but that, yeah. I, that never jumped out. That at never me jumped at all. out. It jumped out here because they don't know who <laughs> who this guy is. He's like the head honcho guy, but he's actually not doing anything. He just found a way to just play horseshoes all day, right? <laughs> and nobody knows who he is. Um, so he found a way to, to disappear in the machine. Mm-hmm. That's the real. That's the ultimate. <laughs> So this CID guy who they're like, well, who's this Washington Irving guy? He's like, why are you in a bathrobe and slippers? And he was like, oh, I was in the hospital. I got a cold, which was the first thing we heard about at the very beginning. (laughs) (laughs) Who was that guy that was investigating stuff and then caught a cold. So then he jumps out the window because that's the only way you can get out of Major Major's office is jumping out the window. And then so then another CID man comes in and who wonders like, hey, who's that guy that was jumping out the window? And he's like, oh, that's a CID man. Uh, wondering about this uh, Washington Irving. So now there's two guys, like the CI, the one CID guy is following the other CID guy because it's suspicious that he was jumping out the window. So Major, 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 you know, dips out of his office, runs through the forest, sees Captain Flume in the forest hiding from Chief Halfo because <laughs> he's afraid <laughs> that he's going to slit his... Uh, from ear to ear. I'm going to sleep over in the middle of the night and slit. <laughs> Your throat from ear to ear. Why would you do this? Why not? <laughs> As Major 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 is running through the forest and seeing uh, Captain Flume, Yosarian <laughs> hits him with a flying tackle, and he says, "This is the last person that he wanted to be brought down with with a flying tackle." <laughs> was Yosarian. <laughs> And so Yosarian gets an audience with him. He says, "Please jump into my office." They jump through the window, <laughs> and uh, he's explaining, like, "I can't fly anymore." And uh, Major, Major, Major's like, well, suppose everybody felt that way. And he's like, well, if everybody felt that way, then I'd be a fool to feel any other way. (laughs) But he can't do anything. Major, 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 caught up in the bureaucracy, can't do anything. We learn about Wintergreen, who was the guy that said the T.S. Eliot thing and got the whole ruckus about the information. He was sent to dig holes in cadet school in Colorado. And that was because he kept on going AWOL from the the training. And so they're like, dig a hole and then refill it. Dig a hole and then refill it. Uh, and that's all he's doing. But he's like, I'm doing something for my country. Again, insanity. You're not accomplishing anything. Yeah. Half Oat shows up there. Wintergreen is digging a whole Nixa pipe. And they think it's oil. So then that's why Half Oat and Wintergreen oh, get shipped off. Man. Oh, man. And, and that's man. why Half Oat is like, oh, I everywhere it. I went, <laughs> there's oil. It's me. <laughs> it's me. It's always been me. But they drag him away. So I love how all of these little elements that you, th- that like I said, the payoff becomes the setup yeah. as the payoff, even <laughs> though it was the setup for the other thing that these people think. And then they say, oh, there's Appleby, and he thought he saw Henry Fonda jump out of the office, and because uh, he, he wants to go see Major, Major, Major about something, and his uh, secretary is like, well, you can go in now during lunch, uh, because he never sees anybody in his office while he's in his office. Those are the orders. You can ask Major, Major, Major when you see him. When can I see him? But he's never going to see him. Because <laughs> he's never in the office. When he's he is in the, the office, office, you're not allowed to see him. Yeah. Okay, I'm going to stop you right there. Thank you. That is going to be 
this is a two-parter ladies and gentlemen for sure this is a two-parter this is the end of part one uh so we are gonna pick it right back up right here in part two uh if you will go and find that it should be available right now